Welcome to Grace Point. I'm the one-armed pastor of Grace Point. And uh, this is uh, first time back uh, after having a rotator cuff surgery. I tell people when they say, oh man, what happened? I said, you ought to see the other guy. I mean, he is really messed up. No, uh, I mean, rotator cuff surgery, and it's been funny. Lori has received a a certain uh, number of questions, and I've received a certain number of questions. But uh, we were comparing in, uh, kind of what the questions are you getting, what are the questions I'm getting uh, uh, as people see me in the sling. And she said the number one question, so I'm going to answer them across the board today so everyone will hear it from, uh, from me. One question, the ladies have been asking Lori, is Mike a wimp? You know, I mean, does he handle the pain all right or is, is he a big wimp? Does he cry all the time about it? Hey, I want to let you know that within four days I was dressing myself. Uh, I was doing things with my left hand I've never thought I would do with my left hand. Um, I can I can do this. I can brush my teeth and wash my face all at the same time. Uh, I, I mean, I am that good uh, with my left hand. So uh, the, the question I've gotten more than anything else is, CrossFit did this to you, didn't it? That's the reason I'm not going to do CrossFit is because I'll get hurt. No, CrossFit did not do this to me. I did it while doing CrossFit, but it didn't do it to me, okay? There is a difference, okay? I've talked to a lot of people who've had rotator cuff surgery. In fact, you, there's this kind of fraternity that you get with people. Uh, people come to you, oh, I had that one done, and it was tennis, or it was racquetball, or it was this or that. I met a farmer in Anderson, um, Missouri, who said he's about to have the surgery, and it was from throwing bells of hay all of his life. And so there's a lot of reasons, a lot of people get it. And so uh, uh, that uh, just happened to be genetics mixed with a constant wear and tear and use uh, of my shoulder that, uh, and the doctor was, the surgeon was in the last service, and she attends here, and the physical therapist is in this service. I got to make sure I get my stories accurate um, because they're going to check me out in the end. Um, But the interesting thing about uh, about about this surgery is it's gen- part of it's a genetic thing. So I said, what's the chance of it being on this side as well? Chances are pretty good. So it may be one of these days I'll be slung up in this in this other side. But the way I look at it like this, you know, I don't know what kind of faith tradition you come from or anything like that, but. This past week, if you know, Ash Wednesday was Wednesday. This is Lent. Uh, a lot of people give up chocolate and candy and sugar and cheese and whatever. Uh, I gave up my right arm for Lent. And so that's what I'm uh, uh, kind of uh, sacrificing for the cause of Christ. No, I don't know about you, but Lent is one of those things that uh, that uh, even evangelicals are getting more and more back into. It was 1100, uh, uh, let's see, 1500 AD that kind of we can date Lent back, kind of enter, entering into the church. It's kind of that period of time when we start turning our attention towards the cross. It's 40 days out from Easter. And we start turning our attention to the cross and to the resurrection and the death and the burial and all that went into that. It's a time of reflection and people give up something or they repent of something that they've been hanging on to, holding on to because they're trying to really kind of enter into that self-sacrificing mode that Christ went through. And so I read actually a list of the top 100 items this year that people are giving up for Lent. And again, all the normals, chocolate, sugar, cheese, beer, uh, social media, whatever, that they're caffeine that they're giving up. But it was interesting, in the top 15, they're giving up Trump. 
Uh, they're giving up their president. I don't know how you give up your president for Lent, but uh, if you pray for him more or pray for him less or whatever, but uh, that was, uh, there was a lot of interesting things out there, uh, what people are giving up. But when we, we are kind of turning our attention as well as a church to kind of looking out, and it was 40 days, less than 40 days away, but Easter's just around the corner. And it's not just a one and done time a year where we focus on Jesus, but we are really, really going to zero in. We're calling this re-Jesus. And this re-Jesus is re-examining, re-enlisting, re-contemplating uh, uh, on, revisiting Jesus, re- recovering Jesus from a lot of the baggage that's happened out there. But, you know, these are the messages that we're going to deal with over the next uh, six Sundays. Just re purposing, restoring, uh, regeneration of Jesus and all that Jesus wants to do and is doing and has done in our lives. This Sunday, we want to talk about reclaiming Jesus. And uh, this art exhibit that we have out right now in the, in the gallery area is about R.E.G., Red Jesus, and, and just really examining uh, what that red crimson blood does in our lives. I know it's gruesome. I know it's rated R. I know it's a little bit uh, gory to think about. And a lot of people don't want Jesus like that. They like Jesus meek and mild laying in a manger. They don't want Jesus dead and suffering and hanging on a cross. And what does that mean? I want us to reclaim Jesus today. And in that, I want us to answer this question. In your heart and in your mind, I want you to answer this question. Because here is the question. When life is all said and done, when life is all finished, here's, there's going to be a test at the end. And the test at the end will have one question. And here's the question. Are you ready for it? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to me specifically? But I want us to kind of enter into this world and the fray of this world out there and kind of hear a street interview kind of version of who is Jesus? Because I can tell you this, there's as much confusion in the 21st century as there was in the first century about who Jesus is. And let's today reclaim Jesus. But let's first of all, see where we're at. What does the world say about who Jesus is? Watch this video. Who is Jesus Christ? Uh, we'll see you later. <laughs> who is Jesus? I don't have an answer Who's Jesus? I got no clue. Um, do you care? Not really. What? Why not? Because <laughs> I got my own opinions on that, and I don't think you really like to hear them. I would, actually. No, you wouldn't. Honestly, I would. That's why we're doing this video. Um, oh. Sure? Yeah. I'm going to answer a question. <laughs> Who is Jesus Christ? Is that the answer? It is. It is. That's the one. Who is Jesus Christ? I don't know. <laughs> he lives upstairs. What's he doing up there? Watching down on us. Why? I don't know. <laughs> He's bored. You got a second? Who is Jesus Christ? Uh, I have no idea. You ever thought about it? A little bit. What did you come up with? He's a person that people look up to. He's your God, I guess. Is he a God to you? Uh, no, he's not. Why not? Uh, I have no idea because I don't have any type of religion. Do you think there's any reason to, to examine it further, to check it out? Uh, not at this point, no. Why not? Uh, 
I don't know. It never really came across my mind. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. So who is Jesus? Well, listen, we're not going to try to recreate Jesus or we're certainly not going to reduce Jesus down as some in our modern age have tried to do with Jesus. Make him just a man. He's a good man. He's a good example. He was a great physician. He's all those kind of things. I want us to reclaim Jesus and to reclaim him for who he is, reclaim him for who he was, reclaim him for who he should be in our lives. And so that's the question that you're going to have at the end of your life is who is Jesus to you? And that's a question that Jesus was asking. It's a question that a lot of people have written on and espoused and expounded on. In fact, if you go to the Library of Congress in 2004, somebody spent the time counting up. There are 17,249 books in the Library of Congress that all deal with who Jesus is trying to get at his mission, trying to get at him as a person. And folks, I'm just saying, I want to elevate it today past the Sunday school conversation, past the, those of you in this room that have been in church all your life and that this is a really kind of a, kind of a boring conversation. I've already settled that, Mike. I need to move on. Maybe we need to get past that domesticated Jesus. Maybe we need to ask the question, how elevated is Jesus in the priorities of the priorities of the priorities of our life? And we need to really ask not theologically or philosophically who he is, but who is he to me in the way in which I live my life? Centuries ago in 17th century to be exact, child prodigy Pascal was raised up during the time of the French Enlightenment in which reason and uh, rationalism was in its heyday and its growth. He kind of became the 17th century apologist of that day. He said it like this. He said, Jesus is the center of all. Everything should center pivot off of Jesus, he was saying. The object of all, whoever does not love you, there's nothing aright. Enter the world, or in, in, either in the world or in himself. There's nothing aright. That basically means that if I don't get Jesus right, then everything else is going to veer off. It will be inches that will turn to, to feet and feet that will turn to miles. And so I have really got to, and I've got to take the time to dive into this question, whether it's now or it's later or it's yesterday. And I've got to answer the question, who is Jesus to me? And it's one that we have got to dive into and pull back some layers. And it's one in which Jesus called his disciples to. Take your Bibles and be finding the book of Matthew. Find it in the New Testament, first four books, got all those red letters in it, open it up to Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew 16 in just a moment. A familiar passage of Scripture, one that I share from every year around the beginning of uh, the summer and uh, share a message from there, and I'll share it again here this summer. But I want to kind of broaden it out a little bit, reach it out a little bit. And it really comes back again to who Jesus is. Because everything about Grace Point, everything about what we are about comes back to what are we going to do with this one question? And sometimes I'm afraid that we have, uh, I'm going to use this phrase a lot, we've domesticated Jesus. I grew up in a church where out in the foyer of the church, there was this beautiful stained glass window. It had this beautiful rendering of Jesus. He had, he had brunette flowing hair over his, his nicely draped robe. 
And he had this square jaw, almost a white complexion. And he had a very nice, neatly shaven, uh, nice, uh, close beard. He was the man's man, but he was also gentle on the inside. Gentle. Is that the Jesus of the New Testament? This is the way Hirsch and Frost say about it to Aussies. They say the difficulty of the church today is not encouraging people to ask Jesus, what would Jesus do? But it's getting them to break out of their domesticated, sanitized idea about Jesus in order to answer that question. Jesus was a wild man. He was a threat to the security of the religious establishment. He was baptized by a wild man. He was inaugurated uh, his ministry by spending time um, with the wild beast in the wilderness. He was unfazed by a wild storm that lasted his boat on an excursion across the lake in the wilderness. Of, uh, uh, excuse me, and and with the wilderness of the demoniacs at the Gadarenes. So he has this this situation where Jesus was in the face of hostility. He was in the face of anarchy. He was was in the face of of, of standing up against the status quo. We come to the book of, uh, of Matthew chapter 16, and we come to this passage in chapter 16 where Jesus is making a major shift in his ministry. And so Matthew chapter 16, uh, he's in the northernmost part of Israel uh, at, at, the, at the southern end of Mount Hebron. Uh, and he's in this area uh, called Caesarea Philippi, named after Herod Philip, Philip Herod. And he's named after this, this area and this region that he is in. And we were there in this, in this very place a year ago. In fact, a year ago last week. I was with a, t- a group from our church. Next year, we're going to be taking a group of our church to where John and Apostle Paul went into Greece and into Turkey. If you're interested, let me know about that. But we were there in in Caesarea Philippi and engraved still into the the side of this mountain are these these carved out places where these shrines were were offered, where archaeologists have identified 16 different God worships, idol worships that were going on in Caesarea Philippi. So this was a very holy place. It was a very holy place in the sense that it was a very religious place. There was a lot of religious toleration. Uh, There was a lot of religious relativism. There was a lot of religious acceptance of different gods and deities. There was such deity worship in there that there was even human sacrifices. In fact, you can see that cave that is darted back in, uh, in that photo there. And that's where human sacrifices were offered up. This is a very holy place in a, in a pagan sense. And Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, hey, by the way, while we're here, who do people out there say that I am? What's the public opinion? What are people saying about me? I want us to read this passage of scripture and let this kind of that setting unfold as you see Jesus interacting with his disciples. Verse 13, and now when Jesus came to his disciples... He asked them. He came to Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they came and some, uh, and, and they said, Some say John the Baptist and others John, Elijah and others Jeremiah and the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, he replies, He says, You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, 
For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I'm going to start a movement with you, Peter. This is a big deal. What you have just declared is huge. The gates of hell will not prevail against this. Listen, Satan and his demons will not stop the movement that is going to be started through you. Man, can you imagine what was going on inside of Peter as he's hearing these words? I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he said strictly to his disciples, he charged them, don't tell anyone that he was the Christ. That's a whole story into itself. But let's keep reading verse 21. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to say and rebuke him. I love this situation. So here in one situation, he says, Peter, you're a rock. I'm going to build my church and I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to do all this stuff. And then then Jesus starts talking about dying. And Peter said, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, Jesus, come over here. If I'm the CEO of this organization and you just promoted me to the president and CEO, listen, we're going to have to stop this death talk, okay? Because we can't have a movement and you die, okay? So let's just get that off the table. And I like the way Jesus puts him back in his place. And he took him aside and he rebuked him. And he said, far be it for you, Lord, that you should never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. So one moment he's a rock and the next moment he's Satan. Uh, You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You come to this passage, probably be very familiar to most of us in this room. And I want us to, to enter into that first century setting. A day and a place of pluralism. A day and a place, Caesarea Philippi was a place where there were 16 different worships, different gods being worshipped. In a place where tolerance was the name of the game. You accept me, I accept you, all roads lead to God, you're just taking your road to God. Does the first century Caesarea Philippi sound almost like 21st century America today? Where we are just like all roads lead to God and all roads are going to get there. And so he really dives into this. Okay, they have all these different gods here, but who, who are people? What are they saying about me? Was Jesus worried about his image? Not at all. Not at all. You can see that clearly as we move on. So here's what I want us to do today. In light of the context of this passage, in light of the context of this story, I want us to answer this question. What's it going to take? for us to reclaim Jesus in this age of tolerance and pluralism. What is it that we need to understand about Jesus? I think there's two measures to reclaiming Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible. We're not going to rewrite Jesus. We're not going to reinvent Jesus. We're going to reclaim Jesus in the Jesus of the Scriptures. So I want us to read this in just a moment. First of all, I want us to understand that the very first measure is we've got to know the man. It's knowing the man, it's knowing the mission. Now, I don't know where you stand on this, but I want this to be just one of those philosophical challenges for you. Are you a person with a spirit? Are you a spirit with a person? Are you a physical being 
with a spiritual component. Excuse me, are you a physical being? Yeah, are you a physical being and you have a spiritual component? Or are you a spiritual being who just happens to have a physical component? I happen to believe the latter. That I am a spiritual being with an external shell that is fading away every day I live. And if you don't believe you're fading away, go look in the mirror tomorrow and you'll see another age spot tomorrow. You're fading away too. Our bodies are fading away. Our lives are fading away. We've never figured out the fountain of youth. We've never figured out how to reverse time. We can mask it. We can make up over it. We can do a lot of other things. So here's what I believe, and this is where you're going to have to wrestle with philosophically, theologically. Are you going to exist after your body no longer exists? I believe yes. Now, some people believe you just, you just die and, and you become nothing. That is a faith in itself. That is a faith move that you'll have to choose. I believe, after 48 years of living on this earth, after diving into this and spending all my adult life and some of my, my teenage life diving into the spiritual realm, I believe there's a spiritual world out there that trumps the physical world. And so what I have got to understand and figure out is how can I tap into and make sure that I do not neglect the spiritual in lieu of the physical. Now, with that being said, Jesus is in this very spiritual place, spiritually heightened spiritual place, and he asked this public opinion, what do people collectively say about me out there? And as we read Matthew 16 and thir- uh, following, he said this, some people say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, or you're just one of those other prophets out there. Peter comes and he says, you're a living God. Before we go there, Let's just dwell for just a moment on the collective opinions about Jesus. In the first century, Jesus was walking the earth. And even in the first century, there was confusion about him. We're in the 21st century. We still have confusion about who Jesus is. You talk to a Hindu, they will tell you their version of Jesus, which their version of Jesus, Jesus was kind of like a first century Gandhi. He spent about 12 years of his life growing up in, in, in India. He learned the meditations. He's kind of like a first century Gandhi. And he, he, he's a guru. And he came back and he, lives in, and he lived in, in Jerusalem. And he ended up dying in Jerusalem. But he spent 12 years of his life. Here's a modern day popular Bangalore, India uh, guru of our day. He's a guy named, by the name of Sharia Sharia Ravi Shankar. Now, the word Sharia, Sharia is not a part of his name. It actually means holy, holy. So he wasn't just good enough to say reverend or or holy. He's holy, holy, okay? He attached two holies to his name. But he was one who espouses this. Now, listen to his own words about what he believes about who Jesus is. Now, some of this I agree with. Jesus is the only way. Bingo, I'm with you. Okay? Jesus is love. I'm with you. Jesus has many names. I'm still tracking with you. He is Buddha. Hmm. Is he? He's Krishna. Now I'm really off track. He is you. I know I'm not God. And I know you're not Jesus either. All right? Your name also belongs to Jesus. 
you, you, uh, do you really think that your name is yours? Jesus is the son of God. He inherits what belongs to God. Uh, do you inherit what belongs to you? See, you have all these philosophical dancing words uh, uh, in questions and answers. Then you belong to Jesus, isn't it? What do you say? And he leaves us with this kind of ambiguous kind of feeling that, hey, I might be Jesus. I might be God too. And in the midst of Hinduism where they have their hundreds of thousands of gods, you might as well be a god with anybody else. Jesus is just one of them. You talk to a Buddhist. Well, by the way, Buddha became, was, a, was born a Hindu, and he ends up becoming uh, a, 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 a Buddhist, obviously, creating the Buddhist uh, faith. And he and Jesus are believed to be, they be, they're believed to be brothers. And as they are brothers, they, uh, they understand universal love. And they're the ones who, who uh, you can achieve Buddhahood if you will uh, just learn universal love. And if we'll just have peace and love and harmony, then you will be like you will be like a Jesus and you will be a God. The Jewish faith, what do they believe about Jesus? Well, you pick up one of their textbooks, the Toledoth Jesu, and they will tell you this, that Jesus was the bastard child of a seduced Mary who later gains magical powers and sorcery. That's what they believe about Jesus. You talk to a Muslim, what do you believe about Jesus? And they will tell you that he was a prophet. He's only a prophet. He, was, uh, he never was anything else but a prophet. And this is what they believe. And they will tell you that he is a prophet like Muhammad. Now, Muhammad is the last prophet. And Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is even mentioned in the Quran. And he even tells you to study Jesus in the words of Jesus in the Quran. But he is not God. Don't tell him he is God. And God would never allow uh, himself to be murdered as Jesus was murdered. So there's no way that he can be God. He is only a prophet. Again, you see all these various faiths, Jehovah's Witness. They believe that Jesus was formerly the archangel Michael. He came to earth simply as a man. He lived his life. He died a martyr's death. He was a servant of Jehovah. He died and he did not come back to life again. You talk to a Mormon. Jesus Christ was conceived of Mary after God came to this earth and had relations with, with, with Mary and that you can be good enough to one of these days and you can achieve Godhood. Now, here's the thing about all the religions of the world out there. Oh, here's another one. The, this kind of postmodern mix of, of, uh, of uh, New Age kind of coexistment, okay? That basically means this. You just take any faith in the world out there, mix it together, because all roads lead to God anyway, okay? And we just need to learn to be tolerant and accepting of all other religions. Sounds a lot like Caesarea Philippi to me. Who do people say God is? Here's the beauty of Jesus versus all the other religions of the world. All the other religions of the world, we are striving to get to God. We are seeking to get to God. We're trying to achieve Godhood. We're trying to achieve goodness. We're trying to pray enough and give enough and do enough that maybe God will accept me one day. But here's the beauty of Christianity. It's not us going to God, but it's God coming to us. It's God coming to, to man and entering into space and to time and to become our Savior and our Lord. And Jesus turns and he asked Peter the one question that we're all going to be asked. It's on the final exam of our life and it's one question and here it is. But who do you say I am? 
What's the personal conviction of you and you and you and you and you? And every one of us in this room is going to have to wrestle with that. But listen, I can tell you this, that Jesus knew who he was. The people in the New Testament knew who he was. The people who walked with him and talked with him knew who he was. Seven different times in the Gospel of John alone, you find where they declare, this is God. Jesus is God. John the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 34. Nathaniel in 149. The healed blind man in chapter 9, verse 35. Martha in chapter 11, verse 27. Thomas in chapter 20, verse 28. The Samaritans from the city of Samaritan came and said, this is the savior of the world. Peter himself declares it in chapter 6, verse 39. And even Jesus himself knew that he was the eternal existence of God. And he knew that himself and he declares it in John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus was God. He knew he was God. Other people knew he was God. And Peter, even in here in this passage of scripture, says, you are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. I ask you this question. This question will be on the final exam. Who is Jesus to you? I settled this question in my life when I was eight years old. Now I know you're thinking eight years old. What did you know at eight years old? How bad were you at eight years old? Listen, I wasn't dealing drugs in the sandbox or anything like that. But I was a liar with the best of them. I could lie to my mother and I could lie to my teacher and I could lie to any authority figure. I was a good liar. I knew how to steal baseball cards from Michael Peterson who lived down the street. Sorry, Michael, if you hear this message, I owe you some baseball cards. You know, I I knew how to be a bully to my younger brother. Uh, I, I, I knew how to do all that at the age of eight. You know what? That was born in me. That broken fallenness was born in me. And when I was eight, sitting in a little one-room church on the southeast side of Rogers, sitting in this little one-room church, I can remember on that day, I don't remember anything the pastor said. I don't remember anything that he shared. I don't remember the passage of Scripture, but I can remember sitting there and realizing there's something that he's saying. It's resonating inside of me that I need Jesus. There was this voice that was calling to me to come and to follow Jesus. And I can't tell you exactly what he said, but I can tell you this to this day at 48. I can still say, I remember that day like it was yesterday. And I can tell you that day was the day that I gave myself to following Christ. When the service was over, I made a beeline to the back door where that pastor stayed, stood shaking everyone's hand as they're leaving the uh, the church. And, and I went up to Brother Johnny and I said, Brother Johnny, I, 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 I need Jesus. And, and in my own little eight-year-old kind of vocabulary, said what I could say. And he said, well, come back tonight as people were filing out the door. And so I go home. And it felt a little empty, felt like it was a little incomplete. And so I asked my mother that afternoon, because she knew things were going on with me. And and I said, is that all I need to do is go back to church tonight? And she said, no. And she began at the kitchen table. The other, my brother, older brother, younger brother were out playing, I guess, because it was just her and I. I didn't have any awareness of them being anywhere around. And I was locked into what she said. And she said, no. And she talked about John, John chapter 1, verse 12, where it says that to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. And she talked to me through what it meant to receive Jesus. And on that day, I prayed. On that Sunday afternoon, I prayed and I received Jesus.
as my Lord and Savior. And to this day, even though I was eight, it's been some ups and downs all along the way, but I can point back to that day as the day that, that changed me when Jesus Christ became everything to me. And, and hey, listen, there have been ups and downs, but I can tell you there have been more ups than downs. And every time there's a down, I always know I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death with my good shepherd. I always know that when I make a bad decision that he's going to be there to pull me out and clean me up and to put me back on the right, uh, on the right path again. I never go it alone. And here's the beauty of it. That happened 41 years ago today. I have my first Bible that was given to me one week later by that church when I was baptized at that church. And so today, I'm celebrating my birthday. So I can now say I'm not 48, I'm not 41, okay? So I just got younger today. But here's a question I want to ask you. Has anything like that ever happened to you? Can you say beyond a shadow of a doubt, has anything like that ever happened to you? This Bible doesn't doesn't just sit anywhere. It's not in a box in an attic. It's on the shelf in my study. And it looks at me every day that I go in there to study to remind me, just to remind me of the day that I gave my life to Christ. I pray to God that you have a day that you can mark on a calendar. If you don't remember the day, it's not big to remember the day. I can only remember the day because the day is marked in my Bible. But I can remember the day. I can remember it happened. And on that day, I went from just being born once to being born twice. I went from being born corruptible to being born incorruptible. It is a day that forever and forever and forever will change me. Do you know him like that? Do you know that man of Jesus like that? Number two, you embrace the mission. We're going to reclaim Jesus. We don't need to domesticate Jesus. We don't need to take Jesus to PG or G-rated cartoon version. We need to understand what happened. That pitiful day, that Friday afternoon, that Friday morning, that fateful day when he died, that we were gonna we we're gonna call a Good Friday to this day, and that we're gonna observe it here at Grace Point. And we're gonna talk about the rejected Jesus on that day. And we're leading up to that day. On that fateful day, it was a dark and dreary day. Six months now is where we're at prior to his crucifixion in Matthew chapter 16. Six months is what scholars began to say. And they say in verse 21 is when Jesus turns his ministry that is largely focused in northern Israel, in the Galilee region where most of his miracles and most of his teaching took place. And they say from this chapter, it's a turning of the page. It's a refocusing now to southern Israel where he's going to start focusing and setting his face and his attention on going to Jerusalem. From this time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. He begins to turn his disciples away from just the miracle of ministry, just walking on water, just feeding the hungry, to saying, this is really why I came. 
And the domesticated Jesus makes him a good teacher. The domesticated Jesus makes him a good physician. The domesticated Jesus makes him a healer or a miracle man. But more than that, he is the savior of the world. And we must embrace that. That was his mission. And again, as I read, Peter doesn't like his mission. And the way he died was a painful, ungodly, I don't have words to describe it. It was inhumane. Where we today in our justice system try to create ways, if there's a death penalty involved, to create as quick and painless process as possible. And that day, the Romans did just the opposite. They made it as painful as possible. They drug it out as long as possible. They made it a torture chamber before you would die. The barbarians were the ones who actually created and invented the crucifixion. But it was the Romans and the Greeks who perfected it. Cicero, a first century B.C. leading thinker, wrote this. He said, it's the most cruel and disgusting punishment. He goes on to say, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him? What? There's no fitting word for that can possibly describe so horrible deed. What he was saying is, listen, We might kill people, but to crucify people. And as a Roman citizen, to even say the word crucifixion, it it should not even be on our lips. You think of the dirtiest word that your mother would wash your soap, wash your mouth out. Wash your mouth out with soap, all right? That was the word crucifixion. We don't even talk about it in our, our table. We don't bring it into our house. Gaius Rabias goes on to say it like this. He said, the very word cross should be far more removed only from the person of the Roman citizen, but from his thoughts. Don't even think about it, Romans. From your eyes, don't even look at it. Don't even hear it from his ears. For it is only the actual occurrence of these things that is the procedure of the crucifixion or the the endurance of them but is the liability of them the expectation indeed that the mere mention of them that is unworthy of a roman citizen or a free man my friends we have made the crucifixion a charm that we wear around our neck now i'm not against that if you have a necklace on right now don't hide it we put tattoos on our body, and I'm not against that, of a, of a cross. We hang crosses at crucifix in our homes to remember the cross. I'm not against that. But what we've done is we've made it a domesticated symbol of Christianity. And in reality, it was the most horrific event imaginable. And guess what? Jesus did it for you and me. Not only is the question, who is Jesus to you? But maybe the question is, what are you going to do with the Jesus that gave everything for you? What are you going to do with the Jesus that gave everything for you? 
in New York City on two, in August of 2003. This was in the New York Times. I even looked it up again to reread it because I thought it was kind of a crazy, ironic story. Um, the Church of the Holy Cross was broken into. The offerings were stole. And for some odd reason, the thieves went to this crucifixion, this large four-foot crucified Christ hanging on the cross, plastered over steel inside, weighing 200 pounds, and they, it was bolted to the cross. They took this crucified Jesus down from the cross, and they stole the crucifixion of Jesus. They stole Jesus from the cross. I thought, what were they trying to do? Get penance for the sins of stealing the offerings? I, 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 I still this day. Even the caretaker of the church, David St. James, a 49-year-old caretaker, said this. He said, what were they thinking? Can you separate Jesus from the cross? And there's a deeper question in that. We like Jesus, meek and mild. We like Jesus in church on Sunday. We like Jesus over there. We like Jesus. But, but have we allowed the crucifixion to be separated? Listen, you can't separate Jesus from the crucifixion. The crucifixion changes my life, changes my destiny, changes my outlook, changes my brokenness. The crucified Christ changes me. And changes you. Who is Jesus to you? And what are you going to do with the Jesus who gave everything to you? Would you bow your heads with me? I don't want this to be confusing. confusing. I don't want this to be ambiguous. Jesus was quite clear when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. In your heart, in your soul, you can have all kinds of spiritual thoughts and adulations and, and, and philosophies. But here's at the end of the day, what are you going to do with Jesus? And who is Jesus to you? And where you sit, you may be where I was sitting on that first Sunday in March in 1976, sitting in that one-room church when I realized on that day, Jesus was calling me to follow him. On that day, Jesus was calling me to give over my bullying, my lying, my stilling, my my ways, my attitude, my actions to Him. And you might be there today. This might be your day. If you are here and you realize that you need a relationship with Jesus and you're just not certain if you've got it, then I would say to you what my mother said to me, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. John chapter 1, verse 12. Receive him today. 
cry out to him today to say something like this. Dear Jesus, I give myself to you. I do not want to live in a fog any longer. I don't want to live wondering if I'm your child, thinking, hoping maybe I'm your child. I want to know I am your child. I want to know that I've been forgiven. I want to know that the death that you paid on the cross the, the price that you paid was a payment for my sins and that they are taken care of and that I am free to live a free life in you and a free life forever. You put your own words to it. If you're here today and you pray that prayer, your own prayer to God and and you're crying out to him. You say, oh, I'm ready. I'm ready to follow him. You do what I did. You tell, you, Pastor Johnny's not here. You come tell me. You come tell one of our other pastors who'll be here across the front. And uh, and you you just take them. You don't have to say, what I say? You just say, hey, I don't know what to say, but I'm giving my life to Jesus, and I want to know what I need to do next. Because that's where I was standing with God. Because I wanted to know what I'm supposed to do next because I'm all in for Jesus.